Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, I'm Steph. And I'm Simon. And this is The Food Fight, a frank discussion of food culture featuring Australia's top chefs, producers, and experts. We'll chat about real issues and go places others won't. This podcast travels throughout the country, and we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather and speak. And we pay respect to elders, past, present, and emerging. This episode, we chat with Wes Lambert from Restaurant and Catering Australia about how to address the many issues facing the hospitality industry today. All right, Simon, let's try it again. We'll introduce our guest, Wes Lambert, CEO of Restaurant and Catering Australia, mate. Thank there you, you so go. much. Thanks for joining us. I <laughs> stopped up be the intro, intro before, so we had to take two, but we got there in the end. Yeah. We did. How's things, Wes? Uh, things are things. Uh, it has been a tough year for the accommodation and food service industry. Uh, it remains the hardest hit industry during the COVID pandemic. Uh, as recent as just days ago, Uh, Perth had a three-day lockdown, and that means that if you own a restaurant, you basically have to cancel all of your bookings for three days. You have to rubbish or donate uh, three days' worth of produce, and that cost restaurants in WA, in Perth and Peel, $25 million in revenue and $7.5 million in potentially lost produce. In three days. In three days. And we're we're sort of live streaming the news here because a part of Wes's job is to stay on top of policy decisions. So eagerly awaiting the, the press conference of the Premier to figure out what's happening. Absolutely. So it, it can go one of two ways. It's either going to be an extended lockdown, which we hope not, uh, or it will be an end to the lockdown. However, we do expect that the Premier will leave uh, masks on in place, uh, which certainly does have a detrimental effect to accommodation food service businesses. Because oftentimes, you don't feel as comfortable going into a restaurant if everyone has a mask on. No, definitely. Um, all right. Well, like, I think there, there is so much to talk about. And obviously, uh, COVID is... The, the biggest news you're or the biggest challenge faced by hospitality in Australia and around the world, you know, in, in recent memory or in recent history. And we'll definitely get to that. But do you want to just give us an understanding first about um, what this organization does and, you know, who you serve and, and how, how it runs and how it works? So restaurant and catering is the peak industry body for the restaurant, cafe and catering segment of the accommodation food service industry. And some other businesses in our industry are the accommodation hotels, uh, the pubs, the hotels, clubs, uh, takeaway businesses, uh, and then restaurants, cafes, and caterers. Uh, We are one of the largest industries uh, in Australia by number of businesses. There are nearly 100,000 businesses in accommodation food service employing uh, over a million people. And so we are certainly one of the biggest industries, therefore needing a very large voice. 
So restaurant and catering as an industry association represents the interests of all of the businesses, whether they're members or not. So when we argue on a local, state, or federal level to parliamentarians, we do so for the entire industry. So that's why it's so important to be a member of Restaurant and Catering, because then your voice can be carried directly to the, to, uh, the stakeholders that affect your business. And out of those 100,000 businesses, what, what sort of representation do you see as members? Uh, so it depends on what state you're in. Uh, in in many states, it's as high as 20%. Uh, but certainly, it is one of the things that we do every day, uh, bringing on new members. As the restaurant, cafe, and catering segment has one of the highest turnover rates uh, of any businesses in Australia. Uh, normally, you see up to 20% of the industry uh, turnover any given year. Uh, most of the time, it's between 16 and 20. Uh, this past year, we did see a net exits uh, in uh, the fiscal 2021 year. Uh, we won't know that number until 30 June, but we, we do know that it's that it, it has shrunk uh, as a total industry size. Uh, but it depends on what state you're in. Uh, some of the smaller states, we have less representation and the larger, more representation. Do you find there's um, there's resistance to becoming affiliated from, from restaurants and from restaurateurs and people like that? Uh, it's more that uh, the business turns over so quickly. So we actually <coughs> have to go out to pretty much every restaurant mm. every three or four years because the owners changed. Yeah, well. And so that, that process, uh, there are n- nearly 49,000 restaurants, cafes, and caterers. Uh, we're the largest single segments of the accommodation food service industry. And so it is a daunting task mm. contacting every single restaurant uh, yeah. over the time period before they open and close. Uh, so uh, it's, it, it's one of our key uh, focuses is uh, getting new members uh, into restaurant and catering because we have so much to offer them. Um, we represent them uh, in IR, uh, in discounts. So we have lots of member discounts with all of our partners. Um, and certainly we're here to help restaurants be more profitable. That is our mission. One of the things that I've found uh, working in publishing and collaborating with restaurants and things like that, and you'd know the same thing, like, and obviously yourself as well, was in such a low margin uh, industry, especially at the level of small business, you might be talking a you know fifty seat restaurant or something like that. People are very apprehensive to part with money for things that don't necessarily have real tangible value in terms of getting customers through the door, uh, increasing you know increasing turnover uh is that a difficult challenge when it comes to those small businesses to try to you know gain membership um and i guess the second part of the question is like where do you see most of your membership in terms of the scope of corporates you know uh hotels and stuff or you know small bars small restaurants and cafes and things like that so we do offer a monthly payment program so from a restaurateur's point of view it can match their intake of revenue. Uh, It's usually not financial. Um, Our membership fees are quite low. Uh, um, It really is just about getting to each and every single restaurant in Australia every year, which uh, can be a challenge uh, for a small industry association. Uh, Ultimately, it's huge value for money. Uh, I think now we're up to nearly $50,000 in value uh, for your membership in member discounts and um, just one call to our IR specialist uh, is worth $500 if you had to call a, mm. a uh, third party and pay for that hour. So uh, it certainly is great value for money. Um, we have a very high hit rate once we actually do contact a restaurant and do get out there. Um, so you know we 
our biggest challenge is just the human resources to get to right. every single restaurant. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely from, um, I think too many people are completely aware, especially on the on, on a small business side, are aware of what restaurant catering do and, the, and their role in the industry. Um, and possibly that is to do with you, because there's so much turnover, there's very little traction of people hearing about these things. Um, what what are you guys doing to to make sure that the word is out and to make sure people understand um, what you do? Is, is that just literally visiting, calling? Um, how do you guys go about actually getting people to come in? Well, I'm going to finish answering your question. So we have members <laughs> across all uh, business sizes and business types. Yep. Uh, so we have members that, um, that have uh, multiple businesses, franchises, uh, all the way down to single mom and pop. Uh, one location coffee shops so it's quite uh, right across the spectrum of business types and sizes Mm -hmm. Um, and to your question um, we offer uh, sorry I answered this question and forgot your question (laughs) <laughs> um, what, about, like, what, what do you? What do you? Like, how are you guys actually getting yourself out there? How oh, you, sorry, sorry. So sure we're we we are all over the media, uh, social media. Uh, we have a restaurant and catering app, our website, uh, our coronavirus hub. Um, you know, we are in every possible medium that someone could be looking at mm. uh, from a restaurateur's point of view. Uh, it really is about actually making that direct connection. So convincing someone to become a member of something normally isn't just they see it and they click and become a member. Normally yeah. they want to speak to someone. They want to find out, you know, what else can they do besides be a member? Can they be a part of the awards? Uh, are there any member benefits that are specific to their business? And so, as I said, it's uh, with so many. Um, there are eight times more restaurants, cafes, and caterers than there are hotels and pubs. There's only 6,500 uh, pubs and hotels in all of Australia. There's uh, nearly 49,000 restaurants. Mm. So it's, it is a, a huge number difference. So there are many more pubs and hotels that belong to their industry association than ours. Uh, there's very low turnover. Once people buy a pub, um, they tend to hold it for a long period of time. Mm. Um, and you know, with the gaming and, and that side of it, um, you know, there, there tends to be a higher uptake uh, to the smaller associations. Um, the associations that have a smaller number of businesses in their segment, uh, you know, it's, it is certainly a wonderful problem to have that there are so many businesses, but uh, it is a problem. It, it, mm. Reaching out to every single one of them is, is uh, one business at a time. Mm. One thing that we'll talk about is Simon and I spend a lot of time talking to small business owners and, and chefs within small businesses a lot of the time. Uh, we talk to people who are you know, chefs and owners of larger groups and things like that. But the majority of the people are the sort of these boutique, high-level establishments in Sydney or Melbourne, Canberra, the New South Wales South Coast is sort of where we explore. And your experience is in, in hospitality itself is from a, a bit of a different zone to, to that uh, with, you know, larger larger scale, scale types of venues and things like that. So do you want to give us a quick brief potted history of Wes Lambert's hospitality experience? Oh, well, that's a long history. It's not short. Yeah. Uh, I faked an ID at 14 to flip hamburgers <laughs> in a fast food restaurant in Texas uh, and waited tables through high school, uh, went to uni um, and didn't work in hospitality immediately. Uh, 
volunteered to go in the army, then back to uni. And my first job, real job, was uh, as an investment banker in restaurant capital. So I was learning the financials of restaurants, then managed nightclubs, built and owned nightclubs, um, sold that and moved to Thailand and bought a pub and sold that a year later and moved to Australia and ran into uh, a gentleman who owned a small restaurant group and wanted to grow it rapidly. So I restructured it and took it unlisted public. So we were a public company and we owned Kingsley's and we built Chop House and we partnered with Jamie Oliver and brought Jamie's Italian to Australia and New Zealand. And we were very lucky. We sold out uh, and uh, the company that bought us uh, did not fare so well. No. They went into mm. liquidation. But uh, the underlying businesses were still quite good. Um, Chop House is still going strong and, and so are the Kingsley's. Um, and you know, Jamie's Italian globally is shut down, but uh, it certainly was a good concept. Uh, it's just um, that particular dining style did not uh, last uh, mm. really around the world. Okay. Um, we, we could circle back to this later, but I might as well ask the question while I've got it in my head. Australians seem to have a bit of an affection for small small restaurants and small businesses and things like that potentially i think maybe this is a factor of the bubble that simon and i are in in terms of the people that we know and the people that we're friends with and things like that but for example uh you see international corporates like starbucks not doing very well in australia gloria jeans those sorts of things uh we've had recently in wollongong um the Bavarian opened with great gusto for a while uh, and is now closed, I believe, yeah, Simon. Yeah. Uh, possibly we had, reopening. Oh, possibly reopening. Rumors okay. on the street, but um, have been right. closed for some time now. Uh, what are some other examples? Like, um, what's the true... Like, Crenides, a Crenides. chain. Like, like, I mean, Wollongong specifically, chains and large, larger groups haven't fared well. And I think across Australia, like, say, with Starbucks being, being a prime example, I think there is... Um, and compared to the UK, where I'm from, where every coffee shop is is a chain, it's like you know, Starbucks or Costa or um, the twenty other ones there are. Um, I think Australia's definitely been against, um, or maybe I think if it's good, it sticks because a couple of have. But if it's um, if it's not, it doesn't fit the mold of Australia. I think it gets gets kind of rejected yeah. quite quickly. So, how do you, how do you see you know the Australian dining public in comparison to what you've seen internationally in terms of how they embrace you know whether it be international corporate organisations or publicly listed uh, you know large scale restaurant groups hospitality groups and things like that is there a sector like to like are we sort of a bit you know our 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 lens isn't can exactly in focus because of the bubble that we live in or are they are there still a lot of support for these types of larger businesses and things how do you see it well australia uh has one of the highest um dining out of home percentages in the world uh, at 36 percent pre-covid so that means that uh, australians eat on just over one in three of their meals out of home uh, which is quite a high percentage mm. and so the australian dining public is is quite refined in terms of what they enjoy um and that refinement might not be for fine dining or premium casual. It may just be for very authentic and very close to home and, and farm to table type dining. And what we do notice is that um, each state and region within each state has, uh, has a dining style or a type of dining or even as, as uh, granular as uh, 
owners and managers of businesses uh, that they tend to lean towards. And so we do find that when uh, foreign groups come into Australia and try to expand rapidly without um, taking that into account, have, have had a bit of trouble. Um, certainly there are a few that have been very successful. Uh, however, homegrown groups tend to stay in the state um, you look at um, some of the large pub groups like Maryvale that uh, thrive in, in one particular state but haven't moved to others. Uh, you look at um, you know, businesses uh, like Lucas Group uh, in Victoria and Melbourne that does have a, a couple of businesses outside, but their primary business uh, is in Victoria. Um, you know, we tried to open a restaurant at Kingsley's uh, on Flinders Lane in Melbourne, and it was not successful. And we attributed that to... You know, that dining culture, let's say, in, in uh, Melbourne specifically, in Victoria, is very parochial. And so, you know, it, it is a big risk for a large group or a foreign group to, you know, expand super rapidly into the suburbs of any major CBD uh, around Australia. Uh, because there, there is that risk that it's, it is not as, um, as local as the locals want it to be. Uh, certainly some of the larger global coffee chains uh, didn't realize that um, even the smallest coffee shops in Australia have expensive Italian coffee machines and that, you know, it's in the U.S. Uh, and some other countries, drip coffee is the way to go. And so the Starbucks and the Gloria Jeans are then a step up in Australia where you have you know, very, very um, you know, astute baristas and very, very well-sourced coffee. Uh, it, it can be difficult to break into that with mm. a, a commodity type product uh, that's you know been honed down to a specific taste and flavor that isn't necessarily as premium as what uh, Australians were used to pre-coffee um, or pre-Starbucks and Gloria Jeans. Uh, we do think that uh, that consolidations will happen because of COVID. So you will see some of Australia's uh, groups get larger as they acquire more spaces. And so that may lead to some groups that have locations around the country, uh, but then those original locations staying the same brand uh, with some of the same staff and certainly the same menus. But the ownership and beneficial owner structure may be from a group, a wider group. Mm. But as long as they keep that parochial and local flavor, we think that that uh, could be a successful strategy. Cool. Interesting. Um, I think one of the things to note is your and this organization's obvious passion for the success of the hospitality industry in general. And one of the interesting things about what you guys do is I think that hospitality businesses and owners are generally so busy that when significant challenges arise or perhaps there's an existing challenge that is such a big one that it takes so much thought and work to try to address that the task of addressing certain challenges at the same time as running a business is basically impossible. So you guys here have the potential and the skills and the experience to address these challenges using really well-researched statistics and a really good understanding of policy state-to-state uh, and the, and all those sorts of things. So speaking on challenges, I want to go back to pre-COVID because a lot of the people we talk to talk about an industry that 
is just ridiculously hard to be successful in because of numerous challenges. So before COVID, do you have an opinion about what were, you know, what was the biggest or what were some of the biggest challenges faced by the hospitality industry? Well, the number one challenge pre-COVID was uh, the inability to raise prices. Yeah. So uh, in Australia... It's a common thread in our podcast. I've yes. So, mentioned this so in, yeah. in Australia, uh, a cup of coffee, a, a, a brist coffee, has been $4 for about 10 years. Uh, and a steak uh, has been about $28 on average mm. for 10 years. The problem behind that is wages pre-COVID had gone up about 35%. So a dollar was now a dollar thirty-five in wages. Rents go up three and a half to five percent a year unrelentingly pre-COVID. Mm. So your rent may have been up thirty to sixty percent in that same time period. Uh, all of your suppliers' wages and rents are going up. So all of your food and beverage was also going up in price. Uh, utilities they march forward. You know even your telephone bill over that <clears throat> ten-year time period went up, but prices did not. So the ATO used to do a benchmarking report for each industry. Uh, and in the 15-16 financial year, uh, the average restaurant profit was uh, 8, 10, and 12, depending upon how, what size you were. Ibis World uh, and the ABS this year uh, tell us that the average restaurant profit is just below 5%. And this is just an unrelenting march mm. of costs. I think it's well, good to note that it hasn't always been like that either. I think no, go back to the, the 80s, it was up near like sort of 20% um, for some businesses. So it's not like it's always been this slim. No. And so what happens is if you applied the index of your costs, wages, and expenses in the past 10 years, um, a coffee would be close to seven Australian dollars, which it is in New York, which mm. it is in Tokyo, which it is in LA. Um, and you know your average meal prices would be considerably higher than they are now. Uh, what we find is that um, many uh, businesses that have restaurants but whose focus is not food, uh, some of the gaming industry businesses and uh, alcohol-related businesses will sometimes use food as a loss leader. And mm. so then the average Australian living in a country town or living in a village uh, going into their pub believes that the true value of a meal is the price they're paying. Yeah. Mm. Whereas that meal may be being subsidized by something else. So that, that is an issue that we deal with every day. Uh, and then, you know, certainly uh, right up to COVID, uh, just the reluctance of businesses to raise their prices in concert with the rising costs um, had driven profits down to, you know, around 5% uh, with many uh, in the industry telling us that they were break even and just working in the business as a chef or a manager and taking that salary. Uh, and, you know, some groups uh, have reported to us, you know, profits in the 8 to 12%, but that is a group that has group buying and, and you know, one head office, one accountant, one, um, you know, HR manager or one executive chef for multiple businesses. Um, but it, it really takes that um, economies of scale, at least three businesses before you start getting away from the average profit margins. Mm. What do you, what do we, what do you attribute um, this lack of, of price movement to? Is, is it, is it consumer um, led? Is it that, you know, the, the customer is unwilling to, to pay more or is it a, 
um, like you said, where restaurants are scared to put their price up because they they feel that these prices are set. Or like, like what do, what would you actually attribute um, this to? Well, there, there uh, was a large restaurant group in Victoria that closed um, pre-COVID uh, that um, went into bankruptcy, whose fixed price menu uh, 10 years before was $58. And when they liquidated, it was $62. And so, you know, the issue is consumers. Um, you know, the, the general consumer wants the most benefit for workers and for, you know, the economy in general, but they don't necessarily want that to happen in the prices that they pay, mm. um, you know, in the grocery store or in a restaurant. Um, and so, unfortunately, the cost pressures had become the number one issue because of that pricing. Uh, it really is consumer driven. Um, you know, and business fear that uh, prices couldn't rise. However, since COVID started um, and the crisis has come and now we're in COVID recovery in Australia, prices have increased significantly mm -hmm. uh, in order to ensure that those businesses could actually stay in business uh, because competition is down. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like when we did a sort of COVID episode pretty early on and we sort of made some predictions and, and that was kind of one of them was that if there's there, there is a lot of restaurants in, in Australia and a lot of competition and a lot of different price points and different groups and that was one of the things we we sort of looked towards was if there are less restaurants there you can for, I mean, for staff in some ways it's going to be it could, it could have been a bit of um, a bit tight with less jobs not really the case but definitely customers are going to have to pay more and, and restaurants might have a little bit more power here moving forward we, we are seeing that to begin um, we are seeing that uh, with many restaurants that um, have closed their doors uh, and lots of release signs, uh, but also businesses and their customers realizing, look, when we have snap lockdowns that can come at any time and we don't have any international uh, tourists, we don't have any international students, we don't have any working holidaymakers, backpackers, migrants, business travelers, uh, we need you as the local consumers mm. to help us to stay in business. And uh, I recently went to a restaurant in the Strand and they only had a fixed price lunch option, three or four courses. And there was no a la carte menu. And there had been an a la carte menu in this restaurant pre-COVID, mm. but they used COVID as a pivot to pivot their business towards something that was sustainable. So ultimately prices have to rise. It's called inflation uh, over time. Otherwise, an entire industry would have gone out of business. Does this organization do anything in terms of educating the public about the fact that they need to be paying more for their food? Oh, it's certainly uh, in our policies and, um, and we speak to restaurateurs all the time. Uh, but restaurateurs are the ones that contact consumers. So we represent the restaurants to uh, local, state and federal government, as well as to many of their suppliers. However, ultimately, it's up to the restaurant to speak to their local customers. Uh, imagine there's 25 million people in Australia. It's a, it's a huge ask for one industry association to speak to customers also. But we certainly give them the tools that they need. Uh, we give them the courage that they need to let their customers know that, you know, I can't charge the same amount forever as the costs that to my business go up. When you think about it in, in comparison to, let's say, America or Europe or the UK, in America, the minimum wage for a server has been $2.55 an hour for decades. The minimum wage uh, has been uh, just under $8 for 
decades. The U.S. doesn't have that constant rising of costs. Uh, in fact, um, in many cases, there are economies of scales and efficiencies that drive down the costs uh, to restaurants, so they're able to fluctuate their prices. Uh, the U.K. and Europe are very similar. Uh, they, their minimum wage safety net uh, stays pretty stable over yeah. time. Uh, Australia is has the highest minimum wage in the world, uh, and it relentlessly increases every year, regardless of the inflation rate. Uh, and certainly that cannot be sustainable forever unless prices go up uh, because it's an impossible situation for our industry. Do you think, though, I mean, do you think restaurants out there, Simon, you could comment on this too, you know, having owned businesses. It seems to me that when businesses put up their prices, they kind of just put up their prices and there is no transmission of information to the guest that here is why. Like, I think that from what I see, still in general, people think that coffee should not be more than $5 because that's how much coffee costs. When people think steak should not be more than $30 Mm. because... A $30 steak is an expensive steak and I don't want to pay any more than that. And they don't understand what we're talking about, like the, the, the general public. They, they don't have a knowledge of this. So, I mean, yes, it's up to businesses to communicate that with the customer, but it's, it's a challenge for them to try well, to get that message across when they're trying to be hospitable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for one, it's hard to... I think the, the, one, the one good thing that I think restaurants need to look at more and what restaurant catering can provide is the statistics, is the raw data <laughs> that we can say is like, look, like, I know you're spending 150 bucks on the tasting menu here, but like what we make is, is like this tiny little amount. Like, like, you know, it might seem expensive to you, but we're still not making that much money. But it's still, it's just very... Like the, 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 people are very set in, in that, that, that this costs this much to the point where I'm part of a chef's Facebook group and like it'll alternate posts between we need to get paid more. Look at this job advert. They're only offering this for that. And the next person will be like, I went to this restaurant. It was sixteen dollars. This calamari, and they'll post a picture of it. So and, it, and, and then everyone alternately gets on the poster for either expecting too much wages or expecting food to be too cheap. So even people in the industry have the same thing of you kind they kind of want it all. <laughs> they want higher wages and to pay less you, when they go up you, to You are preaching to the converted. It's um, it, it is certainly a challenge when you know the staff uh, in restaurants uh, and hospitality businesses do expect um, to be paid uh, above the award rate or more mm. because it, it it is a certainly a um, a high intensity job uh, that you that. Um, uh, is a career, but certainly a career that you need to love doing to do. Um, but it, it is that way. It is difficult to to convince the consumer that a cup of coffee is worth more than $5 or that a steak is worth more than 30 But if we go back in history, um, I remember seeing a, a old advertisement, uh, you know, a cup of coffee for $0.05. Cents. And you know, it certainly is not five cents now. But we've just had that stagnation of prices. Mm. We've reached that price ceiling where eventually we will need to come up with a different system, uh, a different award system rather than, uh, you know, 123 modern awards and the Fair Work Act. Mm. We'll have to come up with a different system uh, because, you know, it, w- when you get to the point where, where everyone is making a minimum of $50 an hour, but coffee is still... S- five or six dollars you know that that's a difficult thing and it doesn't take very long to do that mm. um you know with 
uh, the requests of certain stakeholders uh, to increase wages three and a half percent every single year. Well, you know, across a 10-year time span. That's another third added to the, the wages. Uh, and you know, certainly, um, working in hospitality is worth a lot for the managers and chefs and, and you know, skilled workers and, and semi-skilled workers and, and you know, people that are just getting in the industry. Uh, but certainly, it does have a, a limit, meaning you know, it's, um, if consumers only want to pay $5 for coffee, then you know, then there will be a value for someone who you know, makes coffee and it will be tough for that to continue going mm. up. It does, does the, I think maybe we want to the sort of lobby arm of restaurant catering, like, do, does the government realize these things like with your interactions? Do, do, they, do they know that there is this, this problem and especially with hospitality being a fairly unique industry in a lot of ways um, and it making up such a large um, you know, amount, amount of, of employment in this country, um, a massive reason for tourism here. It does feel like we get overlooked and not considered in a lot of ways. Is, is that what you've found in, 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 lob- in lobbying and in, in interaction with the government? Uh, we actually have a good track record in lobbying with the government, and they know the plight of accommodation food service. Um, it, it is an industry that has lots and lots of touch points with the government. Uh, skills. So the 39.3% drop in uh, entries into the food uh, categories of vet and TAFE. Uh, meaning that there are less and less and less and less uh, Australians that are w- qualified to work in hospitality businesses. Mm. Uh, it is the increasing and uh, high rents for uh, high street locations in CBDs and now during COVID that n- aren't necessarily worth what they were before, uh, but the government's wanting everyone to return to the CBDs uh, mm. you know, to keep those property values where they were uh, because it could collapse an entire system of commercial property and their lenders, the big four banks. Um, you know, we certainly lobby the government on many fronts, but it is, it is a multifaceted. You're talking about, uh, you know, we have uh, single-use plastics lobbying. We have takeaway alcohol lobbying. Uh, we have skills lobbying. We have migration lobbying. We have the uh, Fair Work Act, the Restaurant Award uh, lobbying. We have states that individually are trying to introduce uh, underpayment uh, laws and regulations. Uh, Victoria wanting to criminalize it uh, and also Queensland. Mm. Um, we have states on a local level um, where you have the COVID restrictions individually by state. You have l- different liquor laws in each state. You have different um, regulations and requirements as far as food safety, safety food handling, RSA. Uh, it, it is a daunting task that we do our best at every single day, mm. uh, but our industry covers across so many uh, departments and so many um, government ministries that it, it definitely is a big task to do that. Mm. Does, does that does that mean realistically what you are trying to do here is, is possibly spread too thin for the amount of issues we have? I uh, know it's uh, it is up to us to uptake as many of those as we can. Of course, and, I mean, also, also deal with them one at a time. Rest more restaurant support, so then potentially there can be better representation across all all the issues. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the more members I mean, we have, the more you know. Whereas we have customers a problem, have. you have restaurants as a problem. <laughs> yeah. So it's you know it's um you know ultimately what what we always say to customers is look you have to support your local business. You know they need you to go in and support them. Mm. Uh, it's you, you can't order 
you can order online, but you can't order like you, you let's say do in a retail store. If I want to, you know, if I want to buy a suit now, I can either go into MJ Bale or I can order MJ Bale online. And because I know my sizes and I tend to order online, but that means that they need less and less MJ Bale stores, right? Because if they just have a warehouse and I know all my sizes, mm. I don't necessarily need to go into one. So retail going online is, you know, has certainly increased the number of retailers and, and certainly increased the retail spending. The issue with restaurants is they're designed and have been for all of time until the, you know, 2015-16 for dine-in. And we certainly embrace delivery and takeaway. It's become quite a large percentage of uh, the COVID dining and, and modern dining, mm. and that's consumer-driven. Um, but restaurants are designed for you to come and be there and experience uh, what they have to offer. And so, you know, it, it certainly uh, will continue to be a challenge to balance uh, all of the uh, requests and requirements and stakeholders that are in accommodation food service. Mm. Can I ask about something going back to when you were talking about uh, – you know venues that have gaming and we were sort of like alluding to a podcast that we've done in the past about how pokies affect competition in businesses uh it does as you say uh food can be used as a loss leader uh at certain venues and definitely having a high gaming you know turnover allows businesses flexibility when it comes to what they offer in terms of food and beverage how do you represent the interests of gaming you know people venues whose a large proportion of their revenue is via gaming uh at the same time as representing small mum and pop businesses at the same time so actually the they're in a different uh, segment so uh businesses that have gaming would fall uh under a different industry association right um and so are certainly uh represented outside of restaurant and catering uh we don't do gaming at all uh we're an exempt organization so we can't represent uh um any businesses who uh have gaming or primarily alcohol there'd still um, be some link obviously with say for for clubs that have restaurants in them and obviously the staff are employed under a restaurant a different award what about a uh, what about a group that has some gaming and some non-gaming venues mm. So they would they would still fall under the gaming. So if someone's let's say head office was hotel and pub, meaning that the majority of their businesses, uh, there's also a bit of confusion in the marketplace, which is what I talked about before. Mm. the The village or the town that has the local pub that has a restaurant in it, it's still a pub. Yeah, it just happens to serve food. Mm. Now that can, it can be an award winning pub. It could have an amazing food, mm. but it might might have prices that are subsidized by the gaming or the alcohol in that business. And so it, you know, it certainly um, then comes in direct competition with the restaurant next door that, that is just a restaurant without mm. gaming, without the, the higher percentage of alcohol. And uh, something that I wanted to touch on before that uh, has just come back into my mind is one of the things that COVID has pointed out is the, uh, businesses that were unfairly competing and we're talking about cash businesses so businesses that were charging you know ten dollars for a pot of food when we know that break even on a container of food is sixteen dollars so if you're charging less than sixteen dollars for a meal then you know you you are either selling a ridiculous volume or you know you certainly are are 
uh, potentially a business that may have been using cash or paying cash in a way that uh, Mm. created an anti-competitive environment. And what we did notice is that many of the cash businesses in Australia closed because they weren't eligible for JobKeeper. They weren't eligible for uh, the um, payroll tax rebates or the grants. So that is one thing that that, um, we were glad to see is that those businesses that were not competing fairly uh, have disappeared. And many consumers, as they return to the CBDs, will find that um, some of the restaurants that they may have patronized mm. that uh, you know in train stations that are charging five dollars for yeah. for a, a pot of food that isn't a price that is I mean, actually sustainable i'd say almost everyone would have a favorite restaurant in that category like i, I can like tick off like <laughs> three or four i frequent in wollongong who like nothing would be more than 16 bucks on the menu and so you you then begin to look at that and go how you know how, how is that possible mm. that you know and it is possible in smaller t- restaurants in smaller towns. You know, if you have a, a mom and pop business where, you know, the the parents or the, the children or partners or, you know, are, are working in the restaurant together, there's ways to do it. Mm. But uh, in volume, in mass, in CBD areas, it is impossible mm. to, you know, have businesses that have cash only signs and, uh, you know, being non, being competitive in a fair way mm. to the business next door that's that's mm. not cash driven that's that's certainly um you know paying the fair wage and and operating in their business in a way with higher prices mm. Mm. possibly then rephrasing steph's original question is as a lo- as a lobbying government or government associated body um how do representing smaller restaurants how do you then compete against the gaming lobby, which is historically much bigger, and then representing these large pubs with gaming, large clubs. Um, how, how is there competition there between, because obviously, like I said, they are um, similar aspects and they both run food businesses. So for the customer, it, they don't really know any difference. They know there's a restaurant in this club and there's a restaurant down the street. So how is that, that competition between the sort of two, two lobby groups and who's, who's getting the government's ear in, in that? So luckily, there's enough uh, government ministers, both state and federal, that uh, we all get their ear. Yeah. Uh, we often go to events with the other associations that are in the accommodation food service industry. Um, we work well together. Mm. Um, we certainly have a lot of overlap uh, around the food and beverage aspects, around the landlord code of practice and rents uh, and you know things like Dine and Discover. Uh, we have a lot of overlap. Uh, we don't see it as competitive between the other industry associations, uh, as we all tend to stay in our own laneways. Mm -hmm. Uh, But certainly, from a consumer's point of view, uh, consumers can become confused at what is the true value of something. Mm. Um, We often say, I can get a meal served on an airline, but it's not a restaurant. (laughs) Even though if you're sitting in business class, they serve you a meal with cutlery and, and beverages and a, mm. but are you in a restaurant? Do they? No. I've never been, I've never oh. been in business class. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I watch the videos on this. <laughs> I see it on Instagram. I, sometimes. I use points to upgrade you get cheap tickets and then upgrade with points. But, um, it, it's, you know, ultimately, you know, there are lots of businesses that have a food and beverage element to them that are not restaurants. And uh, it is important that uh, consumers understand that um, the business model of restaurants requires that if they want to enjoy that restaurant, mm. that as time goes on, prices must increase. And, you know, restaurateurs certainly 
can't must not be afraid to incrementally raise their prices every year. Um, otherwise, they will run into a situation where they are you know, at a break-even or loss scenario, and uh, it becomes very difficult to continue to operate in that in that mm. environment. Mm. All right. Um, let's pivot to COVID because it's huge news, and we could talk about it forever. But I think that maybe the way to do it. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast, and I'm sure you've talked about it a lot, Wes, if I'm guessing. Mm. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about some of the big challenges of COVID, uh, maybe moving forward, and, and 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 just get your thoughts on them. We don't have to go too much into detail on every single one of them, but for example, one common thing that we're talking to uh, you know, head chefs and people in, involved in HR is staff and internationals. What are your thoughts? Because... I don't, we don't see our borders opening up to international arrivals anytime soon. And I feel like the full effects of these staff shortages are potentially yet to be realised. Well, it's the number one problem in hospitality today is staff. Mm. And it is, there's no silver bullet. Um, many stakeholders, many businesses you know, hope that there is a silver bullet. Um, but it's a multifaceted uh, solution. Um, it's hard to believe that uh, when COVID started just over a year ago, that we asked everyone who was not an Australian resident or citizen to go. Yeah. So we uh, allowed working holiday visas to expire and asked working holiday makers to go home. And we didn't issue any new ones. Uh, we asked international students to go home if they couldn't support themselves. Many did. Um, it, we asked skilled migrants and temporary migrants to go home because we didn't want to give them JobKeeper or any stimulus, even though they had been paying taxes mm. uh, and and been um, productive parts of Australian society. Well, hundreds of thousands, some would argue over a million people left Australia uh, during the COVID crisis, during the first few months of the COVID crisis. Uh, and especially in Victoria, when think there was a severe lockdown, which meant that there were less jobs. Now, we are having to live with that decision. So there are now hundreds of thousands less people in Australia than normal. And many of those individuals, those working holiday makers, backpackers, international students, and temporary migrants and skilled migrants filled jobs in the hospitality industry at a higher percentage than other industries because those jobs could be seasonal. So you think about cans, for example. It's a six-month seasonal city. So I was recently there for one week for work and then 10 days for, for leisure over the Easter holiday. And Cairns has a two-speed economy, one that's booming and one that's bust. Mm. The booming is the hotels and restaurants uh, on the first couple of blocks uh, from the water. But then you get into the interior of Cairns. The hostels are closed. The backpackers are closed. The tattoo parlors are closed. The pubs are closed. The you know the secondary businesses that would normally have been propped up by uh, working holiday makers and international students who tend to spend more money than they earn. Mm. They tend to to bring money that they spend. They earn money that they spend, and then they get money from their parents yeah. that they yeah. spend, or they That's get a right. credit card at home. That's and right. And yeah. so without that those individuals in Australia, while, as I said before, that uh, entries into vet and TAFE and food had dropped 39.3% in five years, we don't have the homegrown uh, w 
hospitality workers. And yes, you can skill up someone to work in hospitality uh, within a few weeks, at least with the basic skills. The problem is, is that the, you know, the few that are unemployed, now that we have only 5.8% unemployment, with the highest participation rate in history, the few that are unemployed, they don't actually want to move cities. They don't want to move to where the jobs are. You know, they want a job that's, that they can get to on public transportation. They may not have a car. Mm-hmm. And so saying, okay, we need you know, 5,000 people to immediately move to Cairns to work in the season, that's a tough ask um, because those jobs were normally filled by temporary migrants who were happy to be transient around the country. So it is. it will remain the number one problem because, as you said, we don't expect uh, borders to open uh, anytime soon to, a, to those working holidaymakers. So we put a submission in to Alex Hawke, the immigration minister, uh, last week uh, wanting to temporarily replace the working holiday visa program with a COVID, work, COVID workforce recovery visa. So the mechanism is there. So let's say two years ago, pre-COVID, if you wanted to get a working holiday visa, you literally went to a website, an Australian website, and put in your details, paid $400, and within a very short amount of time, you were a working holidaymaker. Mm. And you could come literally to, how a, I, how I came you could come to Australia and work for up to three years. Now, if you want to be sponsored or come as a skilled migrant, it could take six to 18 months to do that. Especially but, if you're outside the country already. Correct. But literally as a working holidaymaker, boom, you can come. So that mechanism still exists, even though it's off, even though there's no approvals of working holidaymaker visas going on. You really could just add one more line. You know, are you vaccinated? Upload a copy of your whatever your local vaccination record is. In the U.S., it's a paper card with the CDC logo. In the U.K., it's a business card size um, document with the uh, national health scheme logo on the bottom. You know, just like we often have to upload a copy of our driver's license or a copy of our passport for banking and for and for other reasons, you know, if you upload your your vaccination record, isn't the whole purpose of us being vaccinated so that we can freely travel around the world? Uh, the EU has announced today that they're going to be opening up to America for tourism for individuals that are vaccinated, mm. and so we are desperate for a workforce, and we are saying that once the world is vaccinated, that uh, that we will need to learn to live with COVID, but we're going to have to start learning to live with COVID. If there are people who want to pay their own way to get into Australia, take a job in a regional or a high demand area where there's not a, a lot of workforce, uh, we should give them a pathway to do that. We also are working with the federal government uh, on the PATH project uh, to skill up um, hundreds and potentially thousands of young Australians uh, over a few weeks and intern them in businesses um, so that they can get into the industry. But that is certainly a slow go. Uh, it's not so easy to um, to skill up uh, Australian youth uh, who, you know, in this generation don't necessarily see hospitality as a career, whereas previous generations and certainly uh, many foreign migrants see hospitality as a lifetime uh, career with uh, lots of career progression. Mm. What's the response been to your proposals so far? Oh, look, they're in the mix. They're in the, the melting pot of ideas. Um, but when you have premieres uh, that uh, still put in snap lockdowns uh, and reduce the hotel quarantine and inbound uh, um, passengers, uh, you, know, you certainly uh, then see that um, the skilling and staff problem is going to be a problem for the rest of 2021. Uh, and s- certainly lots of angry people that uh, wish that the government would come up with solutions. But we built a system 
the government, the people, the businesses that relied on that migrant and temporary workforce, it is very difficult to turn that that large ship on a dime. Uh, it will take us time to change the way we do things. Um, and if we're forced or required to change the way that we um, operate because we are short staff, uh, you certainly can see some permanent changes to dining. Mm. And so I guess uh, a second thing and something that you just touched on then was premiers deciding on snap lockdowns uh, and border closures and, and those sorts of things. I mean, to the, you know, I'm not a expert in, in policy or how to, how to deal with COVID, but it seems like things like snap lockdowns are working in terms of mitigating community transmission. Um, how do you see those measures by the premiers and things like that. Do we have any other options that can benefit this industry, um, you know, in terms of lockdowns and border closures? Well, that is the $64 million question. How do you learn to live with COVID? Um, if we ever hope to reopen international borders um, in any meaningful way, we will have to learn to live with COVID. Um, not every vaccine uh, guarantees that you won't have no symptom positive COVID cases, uh, and certainly, um, you know, to to have some cases of community transmission with no symptoms uh, is an expectation. Uh, the Prime Minister just last week said, "Look, uh, once we're all vaccinated, once you want us to reopen international borders, you're going to have to accept that there's you know, thousands of cases a week, well, a thousand cases a week. Well, that's because that is the is what." you would normally expect uh, with a, uh, a virus. You know, the flu has been around. Uh, we all take a jab every year, but the flu still gets around. Uh, the common cold still gets around. Um, you know, it is unfortunate that COVID uh, is, has much worse symptoms and is, and is uh, much more virulent than uh, the previous uh, strains of, of uh, virulent and bacterial um, ailments. Uh, but it is something that... Um, if we do want to no, no longer be an island nation that uh, has no um, links to other countries, uh, we will likely have to learn to live with COVID. And so the snap lockdowns, you know, while they do um, potentially stop the immediate spread of cases while we are not fully vaccinated, we will have to change our strategy once we are, are uh, as fully vaccinated as we're going to be. Uh, or we'll have to expect that um, we'll have a very low return to international tourists and business travelers. Mm. It's interesting because it seems like, you know, number of COVID cases and number of community transmission cases is such an easy metric for the public to understand in terms of success of COVID management. Yet it's sort of not as deeply thought about or looked into as in, you know, how much, how much money have we lost due to these decisions? Like, I mean, yes, we don't have any community transmission or mitigated community transmission via lockdowns and things like that. And that's a, that's a thumbs up. But yeah, when it comes to the other things, there's no, it doesn't look like a measure of success. Whereas like, yeah. this is how much money we've managed to make the economy. So it comes down to mortality rate, really, isn't it? Once everyone's vaccinated, we're still hoping that, that people will still get COVID-19, but the symptoms and the chance of death will be much lower. I mean, Australia's actually got quite a high mortality rate um, throughout all the country. I think it's, it's actually higher than America's. It's um, 3% and the US yeah. is 2%. So if you get COVID, you, you have a 3% chance of passing away uh, in Australia and America, you have a 2% chance, but the numbers are just outrageously high. Yeah. Um, and so what, what what's the most vaccinated country in the world? I think it's... it's uh, Israel? Yeah. They had 40 COVID cases overnight. 
Yeah. We didn't have 40 COVID cases overnight. Mm -hmm. And so the, the issue is, yes, you can have a very high vaccination rate, but still have a still have a high positive rate. And so <clears throat> the, you know, the certainly the change of mindset will be difficult because we have been an eradication, mm. aggressive suppression, an eradication country for, you know, for nine months. Um, you know, we wanted to flatten the curve in the beginning. So we ramped up with more ICU beds and more ventilators. Now we don't use the ICU beds. We don't use the ventilators, but we still have a eradication strategy. It's mm. a difficult strategy. To, I mean, the to ironic continue. thing is at the start, everyone was saying it was just like the flu when we were underestimating it. Then we realized it was much worse than that. And now we're gonna have to go back to thinking it's like the flu. Well, we, we often use, uh, you know, this example of, um, of, you know, risk mitigation and, and of accepting, you know, the accepting learning to live with it. Um, you know, we have, we serve alcohol, right, in restaurants. And we know that leads to drink driving, right? Mm. We know that leads to drink driving deaths, right? There's thousands of drink driving deaths every year. Oh, my God, we got to close all the roads down. We got to close every pub, every bottle mm. shop. No. You learn to live with the risk. You say, you know what? We like, we enjoy to drink. We enjoy drinking. We know that there's going to be some people that get behind the wheel, mm. which is illegal, but they're going to anyway. And we accept that in order for us to have a free and open society that is allowed to drink, that there will be some people that are killed in motor vehicle accidents because of the drinking. Mm. That's risk mitigation. That's learning to live with alcohol and with drunk driving. Um, it's terrible, but would you expect that Australians would allow there to be no drinking? Mm. Yeah. Do you think that would ever that would ever pass muster forever? So eventually, <laughs> we will have to reopen the borders. Eventually, we will have to go back to being a global country. Mm -hmm. um, how long the Australian citizens will? allow us to be a you know a alcohol free country allow us to be a travel free country you know that that's yet to be seen but certainly um you know learning to live with it, it is the next stage mm. Mm. all right let's start wrapping it up and i i thought maybe just to try to you know draw out some of your experience in hospitality you know going back to your earlier days we'll we'll quickly wrap up but what is what is one mistake that I could phrase the question two ways? What's one mistake that you see restaurant owners making frequently that could be uh, changed relatively simply to in, ensure you know a better chance of success in this industry? Or what's what's just a nice little tip that you see being underutilized in the industry? Well, I would say kiss, keep it simple. Yeah, I, would, I don't want to use the last word, but keep, keep, it, keep, it, keep it simple. Um, ultimately, I find that uh, many restaurateurs, uh, they'll end up with a you know, four or five, six page menu and, you know, three, four or five, six page wine list. And, you know, the average consumer can't ingest that much information. Do what you do well. Um, you know, even if you change your menu every few weeks, keep it seasonal or keep it, um, keep it regional. Uh, it's very important not to, overcomplicate your business because then you have a lot of wastage and you have a lot of change and you know you make things difficult for your customer and you certainly could not have the best cost of goods uh, which ends up costing your business so i would say once you have a good thing going keep it simple and uh, don't uh, overcomplicate and um you know th there is no quick fix or or uh or uh 
nugget of uh, wisdom that uh, I can necessarily give to businesses other than don't be afraid to talk to your suppliers. Don't be afraid to talk to your landlord. Don't be afraid to, you know, have those tough conversations with your employees. Um, it is very important that during COVID and, and with the tough business conditions that we have, that um, you don't put your head in the sand. Mm. Uh, many business owners can often feel like things are a little overwhelming. You know what? You 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 know how, how do you eat through an elephant one bite at a time? You know, ultimately, you need to to one bite at a time, one question at a time, one deal at a time, one compromise at a time. Uh, get through the elephant that is the COVID crisis, and uh, before you know it, you'll have swallowed the whole thing. There you go. Cool, Wes. Thanks so much for all your work. It's great to hear some of you know what you guys are active in doing at the moment, really trying to improve things and, and give this industry a better chance of success into the future. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you.
Hello, dear listeners. Steph here. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Food Fight. If you want to get in touch with us, it's at The Food Fight Podcast on Instagram or The Food Fight Podcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you and we want to talk to you. Please leave us a five star review on iTunes. That really helps. If you want to hit me up, it's quicksandfood.com or at quicksandfood on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with Simon, it's Simon underscore Evans underscore TBD on Instagram. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you again with another episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 